Welcome to Your Avaz. I'm your host, Amir Sultan. As a young kid growing up in the state of Virginia, you become very familiar with the state's rich political history. Eight former presidents were born in this state, along with numerous influential figures, including some of the founding fathers of this country. But this state has also seen many transformations in the makeup of its leaders at the governor, state, and local level. In 1994, Virginia elected the first African-American governor in the history of the United States. I graduated high school that year, and I remember how remarkable that election was. Fast forward 28 years later, and now we have women and people of different faiths, religions, holding offices across the state. Today, I'm pleased to have Senator Ghazala Hashmi on the program. She is the first Muslim and the first South Asian American to serve in the Virginia Senate. Senator Hashmi, welcome and thank you for taking the time to be here. Well, thank you so much, Amr, for inviting me to join you. And uh, you're absolutely right. I think we've seen such significant changes in Virginia, especially in the last uh, 10, 15 years. We are seeing it at the federal level. We're also seeing it in our local elections and races, and then certainly in the state level as well. I think what this is an indication of is that uh, more communities are vitally engaged in the political sphere. We really see how politics and governance uh, impacts our communities, our children's lives. And uh, really what I think my particular election signals is that uh, Virginia is an amazingly diverse uh, state and we are very much a part of this fabric. And uh, we have immigrant communities that are reflective of so many new voices and changes that are happening all across the country and certainly in Virginia as well. Got it. Thank you. Um, talk about your past. Um, I read you immigrated to the United States, your family that is at a very young age, and you settled in Georgia. Um, and reading about your background, you mentioned you witnessed desegregation personally in um, public schools. How did that shape your views on race and equality growing up? Yes, my father uh, was a college professor, and he taught for 30 years at Georgia Southern University, which is in a small town known as uh, Statesboro, Georgia, a very small college town. And that's where I eventually uh, settled with my, um, my family. I was four and a half when we moved to Statesboro, and my schools were desegregated when I was just starting uh, second grade. And I clearly remember how um, that uh, desegregation was explained to us when we were just little children. And we were told that um, black children would be coming to the school and that we would be uh, a much more uh, different kind of a school. <laughs> and so uh, even at a young age, just having that explained was very interesting to me. And I just have a very clear memory of it. But I think one thing that my school in particular did very well is that it integrated not just the children, but also the adults into the school system. So along with the children, we also had uh, an assistant principal who was African-American. We had many teachers of color joining our, our school. And so that diversity was a very intentional process. And as a result, there were not a lot of the racial strife and issues that we saw in other parts of 
uh, Georgia or in other parts of the country. Uh, and, and I think it's that intentionality by the grown-ups in the room that really does have an impact on how children view their position in a society and their lives along with each other. And so what I remember out of desegregation, that process that occurred when I was seven years old, is that there was a community of friendship that evolved among the children, whether we were black, white, or like myself, uh, an immigrant and uh, from, from uh, South Asia, that we really felt connected and we developed strong friendships. And these are friendships that I've carried my whole life. I can pick up the phone and call people that uh, I've known since kindergarten, first, second grade, and I consider them brothers and sisters, and, and we still are uh, connected to each other and involved in each other's lives. And that, what that's taught me is that, you know, we have to really think carefully uh, about addressing the issues of race and uh, racism, and that we have to do it in a uh, manner that is thoughtful that allows people to engage in conversations rather than diatribes, and that we really need to listen to each other, and, and that it's quite possible to have uh, diverse communities come together and to do it in a very, very um, meaningful way that is for the benefit of our whole society rather than creating division or strife. Given that desegregation happened such a long time ago, for some young people, they don't even know it. But, you know, I came to this country in 83, and I think you came a bit before me. But how do we get rid of some of these stereotypes and um, these biases that we still have in our society today, whether they're in mainstream media, you, you see them all over the news all the time, just a deliberate behavior and the actions of certain people against a certain race or class of people. How do we get rid of this? It's kind of a disease in this country, in my opinion. It's, it's it's tough to quantify, but as a politician and as a person who, you know, works with constituents, that's pretty tough, you know, to you know to get rid of, I guess, right? I mean, it, it is hard. Um, racism is is something that is taught um, and absorbed by people, but it's also built into systems of our society. And I think that's the hardest part to overcome is uh, looking at the ways in which social structures and social systems are built uh, that continue to perpetuate racist ideas or racist oppression and that disenfranchise large portions of our communities. And being able to take a look at, for instance, the criminal justice system and how it disproportionately impacts people of color, uh, disproportionately impacts low income populations. Uh, being able to examine that and take a look at the policies, the laws that send one uh, group of people to jail while other people are able to pay fines and avoid mm -hmm. incarceration. Those are, those, are, those are policies that are structured and that have the uh, continued effect of perpetuating racial divisions. And I think that's where we need to start. And that's where government can play a huge role 
And we're certainly seeing that in Virginia. Over the last two years in particular, we've taken a look at our criminal justice system. We've taken a look at ways in which housing laws uh, create racial divisions. We've taken a look at how education continues to be segregated despite our best efforts for the past few decades. And being able to have honest and frank discussions around, around these issues is critical. Mm -hmm. And then developing policies that address those deep-seated concerns is, I think, the only way we're going to tackle this, this um, issue of racism in this country. Okay. Um, you started your career in education. You were a professor for, you were a PhD in American Lit followed by a long tenure as a professor. Um, what prompted your desire to run for office and get into politics? Um, you, you know, a couple of things were driving me in this direction. First of all, I've always been fascinated by politics. I grew up in a very political household. My, my father taught political science and American government, and that was his field of specialty. And so we had uh, conversations around the kitchen table about national uh, politics and international politics every night. And so that was uh, certainly very much a part of uh, my comprehension of the world was to look at it through the lens of uh, how the political world and governments were shaping uh, and impacting our lives. Uh, but a couple of things in particular uh, affected me in, in uh, 2015, 2016. First of all, I was moving steadily towards working in the area of higher education policy. That was a real concern to me, uh, continuing to look at the ways in which a lot of our communities were disenfranchised from higher education opportunities, not able to access um, the, the uh, uh, academic credentials, degrees that they needed in order to be successful in college. Um, also looking at uh, how low-income communities in particular uh, were not able to complete college degrees because they had to work full-time uh, while trying to take classes. And state government plays a huge role in our uh, higher education system. And I knew that if we provided better support, better resources to colleges and universities in Virginia, we could uh, have a fairly dramatic impact on so many Virginians' lives. And so I was moving steadily in that direction. But what really was significant to me was 2016, the election of Donald Trump and the kind of rhetoric that surrounded this particular individual. He came in on a wave of uh, deeply racist ideas, uh, targeting immigrant communities, targeting low-income communities, uh, issuing a so-called Muslim ban, and it was a politics of hatred. And this is not the America I knew. This is not the America I love. Uh, I had taught American literature through the lens of how our identity as Americans and how our belief in a democratic principle was shaped by the philosophy and writings of uh, writers such as Emerson, Thoreau, Jefferson, poets such as Walt Whitman, Langston Hughes, uh, and, and I knew that everything Donald Trump represented was counter to that broader, more important narrative of what the American ideal is. And so I 
ran to counter that narrative. I ran as an immigrant, as a Muslim, as a woman, and wanted to unseat all of the misogyny, xenophobia, uh, Islamophobia, everything that uh, Trump was advocating. Now in 2022, six years removed from the last presidency, some would argue that the rhetoric and the divisiveness is still in our politics. It's pretty disheartening. It is disheartening, you're right. And and I'm very, very concerned about American democracy, as I think a lot of folks are, people who are uh, gravely uh, concerned about the direction this country has continued to move in, um, the anti-intellectualism uh, that we see, the anti-rationality that we see, and the bitterness of this discourse. And so I'm deeply concerned. Where I find optimism is among our young people. And, and that's one reason I always love teaching college is just to be surrounded by young folks and the the kind of vision that they bring, but particularly in this generation, as I talk to young folks, I see such a degree of empathy in their, in their conversations. Uh, I see a greater willingness for them to engage across diverse communities and to recognize that we have serious, serious problems in front of us. We have issues of climate change. We have issues of fundamental human rights. We have a global uh, uh, need to address problems that affect all of our countries. And the young folks are, are willing to take these on. And so what I think we need to do in order to counter the deep divisions that we see among some folks is to really give people an, uh, an, uh, not just the opportunity, but also the tools to engage in productive conversations because there are different viewpoints, there are different perspectives. And we need to learn how to listen better. We need to learn how to debate ideas in a civil manner. And we need to have a willingness to accommodate diverse perspectives. And this is where education comes into great importance because these are the skills that we teach in the classroom. This is where we teach young people, uh, whether they're in high school or in college, how to think critically, how to engage respectfully with different ideas, and then how to analyze facts and come to conclusions. And if we don't give our young folks those kinds of tools, I'm very fearful about the direction that we will continue to go where all we have are uh, 60 second sound bites, people saying things um, just to provoke reactions and uh, steering us away from the kind of thoughtful conversations that the critical issues of our time really do deserve. Got it. Com- makes complete sense. Um, I live in Loudoun County, which is Northern Virginia, very diverse. Um, and I do see a wide disparity in the quality of education in the localities where I live, some of the zip codes versus 30 miles away in a different county. Um, and I think you're the chairman, I read, of the subcommittee on education in the state. As a leader of that com- uh, subcommittee, how do you see bridging the gap and bringing a level playing field for all the children across the state? I know it's a very difficult task, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you've heard it from your constituents as well. So um, kind of help us understand that. 
Yes, you're right. And and as the um, chair of the Senate subcommittee on a public education, these are issues that come in front of us uh, every session and something that we are actively working to to address. These are longstanding issues. They're they're not new. Uh, they've been with us in decades. And clearly, the issues of disparity are those issues that impact our low income communities. And what we know is that you know we can we can uh, uh, focus on paying teachers well. We can focus on the infrastructure, making sure our schools are not crumbling or in in sad states. Uh, we can focus on bringing additional resources to these school systems, and all of those efforts clearly play an impact. But I think we are not going to succeed in addressing the kind of educational disparities that we see in low-income uh, communities until we address the full issue that impacts our young uh, children and their lives. And so we're talking about um, uh, issues of, of housing insecurity that affect so many children, uh, food insecurity, and the general dysfunctionality that sometimes surround the, the lives of, of children and um, their need to have stable uh, situations so that they can learn. Mm -hmm. and, and so what helps children succeed is when they have stability in their lives, uh, when they have caring, compassionate adults who are there to uh, help them and guide them. Uh, and, and it also is very, very critical that they uh, have the, the kind of resources that are going to continue to impact them. So if we're talking about improving education, we're talking about improving the social conditions um, that, that affect our children in every aspect. And we have some really wonderful models in place now. Um, there's, uh, there are programs uh, such as communities and schools that bring that holistic approach uh, to helping young folks succeed. And these are programs that nurture the students that understand that if, um, uh, a child is hungry, they're not going to be able to learn effectively. If the child has gone through trauma, uh, whether it's home and homelessness is trauma, yes. we need to understand that. Um, so if a child has trauma in, in their life, then, then they're not going to be in a position to be able to learn and succeed. And so programs such as communities in school really take that full picture of, of the child and where those developmental needs are and, and provide that support. And the sooner we can provide that support, the better it is for the child. So especially expanding our um, universal access to pre-K is absolutely vital. That early uh, education sets the stage for later success in life. Got it. Um, I was reading your Facebook page, by the way, it's great content that you have out there for your constituents. Um, and you did put out a statement on the re the recent uh, Roe versus Wade draft opinion that was leaked in the media. Um, if for some reason the, the law is overturned in the Supreme Court, can you talk about the ramifications from your lens at the state level? And uh, what steps uh, could you provide the support your supporters um, 
in defense well, of first of, Yeah, first of all, I think it's a complete abdication of responsibility at the federal level, what we see the Supreme Court doing in, in, in this uh, reversal of the longstanding uh, um, um, access to safe and legal abortion that we've had for almost 50 years now in this country. Uh, when the federal government abdicates its responsibility and kicks it back to the states, we see piecemeal approaches uh, that are uh, creating havoc uh, in the lives of so many people, but particularly is going to be a dangerous, dangerous uh, step for um, uh, women and pregnant women in particular and their families. So right now in Virginia, abortion is safe. Abortion is uh, legal. Uh, women have access to it and there are not gonna be any changes. And that's because we put in those protections uh, to, to ensure that women continue to have safe and legal access. But for such a fundamental uh, basic medical need for so many families, for that to be dependent on politicians is where the danger is. And so if we see political winds change in Virginia next year, the year after that, uh, that puts the lives of women and families in a very uh, dangerous situation. And, and so we need to have uh, uh, abortion access uh, as a constitutionally protected right at the federal level, because what we're seeing happening in so many states is going to be a danger for, for many, many people. And just to give you a few examples, you know, uh, in some states, if a, a woman miscarries, if a woman is um, experiences uh, the uh, a death of a fetus inside her womb. For a for a physician to be able to take the necessary um, medical action to treat that woman woman uh, is in some states going to be illegal. And and can we even wrap our mind around that that we have uh, the uh, women who will die they will die if they don't get this necessary treatment. So abortion access is a complex and complicated issue. And the people who don't understand that, the ones who want to just unilaterally take away abortion access don't understand the kind of medical ramifications that this means um, for, for so many uh, women and their families. And that's what's especially frustrating to, to see is that uh, government is making medical decisions where it has no business making medical decisions and no other area is, is government this involved in the medical situation and context of individual human lives. You talk about the bipartisan agreements that are needed and just to reach some common, common sense um, across not just this issue, but others. But we, we do have a executive office that is, you know, right now held all the positions are govern, uh, Republican held. And do you feel it's it's challenging to work across the table and, you know, get your viewpoints across? And, you know, do you see, especially with Roe versus Wade at the state level where you have a, a majority Republican held office, something happens, is it going to be tough to get your point or you, other, the other side, you know, just to come, come to a common ground then? 
you're right. We have to work on a, in a bipartisan manner. And I think working in a bipartisan manner is absolutely critical because that's when you get the push and pull of different perspectives and you reach uh, an agreement that the majority of Virginians, the majority of Americans do, do uh, uh, fall in line with. And so most of the issues we deal with at the state level are bread and butter issues. <laughs> and most of the concerns, the legislation that pass, pass uh, it has to pass on a bipartisan uh, way. And then in fact, in Virginia right now, we have just a very slim majority in, of Democrats yep. in the Virginia Senate. And we've got a Republican House of Delegates and a Republican governor. And so every piece of legislation that has passed this year has been bipartisan. And I think that is quite critical and necessary. Where we have these um, uh, divides are on these issues such as Roe v. Wade on abortion access. And that is very unfortunate because if you take a look at uh, what our polling numbers show, majority of Virginians, I think uh, the one figure I just saw recently was 72 Virginian, 72% of Virginians, similar to uh, what's reflective at the national level, agree that abortion access ought to be safe and ought to be legal. And so for a lot of the citizens of the Commonwealth, these are, these are uh, not partisan issues. They are issues that affect their individual lives and they don't want to see us divided. I think partisanship comes up um, sometimes when there is a great deal of cynicism involved, uh, a desire to perpetuate a particular way of thinking and acting uh, and uh, continues to use um, or abuse public perception in order to develop, uh, uh, deliver a particular viewpoint. And I think that's the danger of partisan politics. Absolutely. Um, you declared your intention to re, uh, rerun for election in 2023. Um, what major initiatives would you be looking to run on and campaign, campaign for? Well, I don't, th I don't think they're going to be very different from what I ran on originally. I ran on issues of education, making sure that uh, we have opportunities for all Virginians to succeed in, in their educational goals. And a lot of that is connected to our great need for workforce development. We have some serious shortages in our healthcare professions, in our, in our manufacturing and skilled trades, uh, in our um, uh, uh, our ability to fulfill so many different areas of education needs. And so uh, education is going to be my, my top concern. It remains my top concern, but also issues about the climate. Um, that is uh, so critical for all of us, not just in Virginia and not just in this United States, but globally. We need uh, governments that are invested in helping us address the climate crisis because it is going to impact each of our lives in, in very significant ways. Um, so those uh, two areas are going to be absolutely critical for me and continuing to focus on the rights of minority communities, uh, making sure that we have equitable access in all uh, areas is, is vitally important. What advice would you or could you give a young person in college or even in high school who's thinking about politics, curious about getting into this arena? What's the best way to get involved? 
the best way I to get involved is to uh, start uh, working with so many different organizations or in in different offices. You know, campaigns always need young folks to be involved uh, at the campaign level. Uh, I've always had interns in my office now to help with legislative matters and to help us um, focus on constituent concerns. So there's so many ways to be a part of this process. But if a young person is thinking in particular about running for office, I would encourage that person to gain skills and information and knowledge in a wide area of, of uh, concerns to, to focus on uh, the issues that impact uh, all of our lives and, and to uh, uh, take a look at how governments work and, and what those uh, roles and responsibilities are. Um, we need smart, capable, ethical, <laughs> and talented folks in government. And we need more people to be passionate about government rather than cynical about it. Uh, and that, that politics doesn't have to be a source of, uh, of division. It actually can be an area where a lot of good is achieved and, and we're gonna need uh, folks who are determined and dedicated to public service to carry that uh, mission forward. Senator Hashmi, if your constituents or any other citizens in the state would like to reach out to you about legislation concerns, what's the best way to get a hold of you? The best way is through my website. Uh, it's simply gazalahashmi.com. Uh, very accessible through that or through the district inbox. If there's legislative issues, uh, that's simply district 10 mm -hmm. at Senate dot virginia dot gov those are very accessible ways to reach us great and for our listeners i'll post all of this information on the podcast details um, at the conclusion senator hashmi thank you for your time and wishing you all the best next year in your re-election and great having you on the show thank you so much amir it was wonderful talking to you thank you thank you